from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. 
If you'd like to follow along with us, you can find this passage on page 182 in the Pew Bible. Listen now for a word from God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who, by the power at work within us, is able to accomplish abundantly more than we can ask or even imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Friends, this is the time uh, for the children age four through third grade who would like to go to godly play. Miss um, Sarah Kate's over here. <laughs> Our summer series of going through the books of First and Second Samuel continues with a reading from Second Samuel. Uh, listen carefully for the word of the Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman and it was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife, as you live and as your soul lives, I will do no such thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day, and on the next day David invited him to eat and to drink in his presence, 
and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The fact that the story of David and Bathsheba has survived in the biblical canon frankly amazes me. Think about it. Here's a story about the great hero who killed the Philistine champion Goliath when he was but a child the one who was anointed to be king by Samuel, the one under whom the 12 tribes of Israel unite. And here he is having a very human, very weak moment. Somebody close to or inside the palace, and perhaps it really was the prophet Samuel, that's who traditionally has been ascribed to be the one who wrote these stories down. I imagine it was very shortly after it happened, wrote this down and decided that they should be preserved And here we are, 3,000 years later, reading this story of betrayal and failing. But how did it not get spun? David was king. He could have ordered that the story be rewritten, couldn't he? I mean, I, I can imagine an alternate telling. He could have said that the mercenary Uriah, who bravely gave his services to the nation, made the ultimate sacrifice. He was felled by the Ammonites as he fought for Israel's freedom. And tragically, he left behind a young widow, King David taking pity on her, realizing that she would now be destitute without her husband's soldierly income. He he graciously took her into his household, and she bore Uriah's son, but he died in infancy. And then David married her. Remember, polygamy was allowed. In fact, it was probably encouraged for kings. And she bore a son who was also a great king, and that was Solomon. And that would have covered his tracks and made David an even greater hero. And even if David couldn't do that, maybe the story was too fresh. Maybe he worried that Nathan or Samuel would spill the beans. Why didn't they just wait a few decades? Why didn't Solomon clean up the tale when he was king? You'd think he'd want to paint his parents in the best possible light. But that's not what happened here. What we have here is the story of David and Bathsheba, warts and all. It's as if the story of the Watergate break-in and the subsequent cover-up was told by the White House instead of Woodward and Bernstein at the Washington Post. Why? Well, first, because the fourth estate didn't really exist in David's time, but really it's because the purpose of this narrative is fundamentally different from journalism. Journalism speaks truth to power. It exposes injustice and corruption. Um, Prophets do that as well. But Journalism is also about selling newspapers, and we've kind of come to a place where you've got gotcha journalism, and we also have things that try to get us to garner clicks. But the book of 2 Samuel is different than that. It is, at its heart, a theological document. You know, we can never know that the person who penned this could have ever imagined that it would become part of the biblical canon, but it did. 
It became sacred to future generations of Jews first and then later Christians because not only does it tell us something about the people in the story, as, as all histories do, but it tells us something about God and something about ourselves and our relationship with God. So first, I'd like to look at the history. The narrator tells us right away that David is failing in his kingly duties. It says, matter-of-factly, in the spring of the year, the time that kings go out to battle, well, David didn't go. He sent Joab and his officers and all of Israel, which means all of the able-bodied men, to besiege the capital city of the Amorites, Rabbah. The full name of Rabbah is Rabbah Ammon. Um, it still exists today as a city. It's, it's Ammon, Jordan. But able-bodied David remained back in Jerusalem. He's not where he should be. And then the narrative doubles down and tells us that David got up in the late afternoon from his couch. The Hebrew word here is mishkwab, which can mean a bed or a couch. What it doesn't say is that he was sitting on his kaseh, which is the throne. Because if he were sitting on the throne, he'd be doing kingly business, you know, ruling his people, arbitrating decisions. Instead, he's lounging around the palace. And what's the old saw about idle hands? So he gets up, he goes to the ramparts of the palace, and here's where the story gets muddled in the popular imagination. I cannot count how many times I've heard people retell this story and tell me that Bathsheba was up on the roof bathing, uh, flaunting herself to catch the eye of the hero king, maybe like some sort of rock groupie. But look at the story again. That's not what it says. It says that David was on the roof of his palace, which in Jerusalem would have been the tallest building at the time because the temple had not been built yet. And from that vantage point, he would have been able to see down into the courtyards of his nearest neighbors. Remember, too, that uh, the ancient Israelites did not have running water, and so bathing would have been an activity that would have taken place out in a courtyard. Um, servants would have drawn water from a cistern and filled a bathing vessel. And yes, you would be shielded from passers-by on the street, but not from above. Bathsheba probably had no idea that she could be seen from the palace ramparts. And even if she had that knowledge, knew that there could be people up on the, on the roof there, the sight lines were clear, there shouldn't be anybody up there because everybody, all the men anyway, are off at the war, or so she thought. But David sees her. David covets her, and then David acts on his desire. He calls for his servants to find out who she is, and then he sends messengers for her to summon her to him. David is the actor here, not Bathsheba. This isn't an invitation. Coming from the king, it's more akin to a warrant. One of my Old Testament professors, Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, pointed out to our class that as a woman in an ancient patriarchal society, Bathsheba would have had no agency to reject David's advances. The power dynamics here are completely out of balance. And to top off just how perverse David's actions were, the narrator throws in this one little detail, that the bath that Bathsheba was taking was a ritual of purification. She was taking it to make herself, as the Hebrew says, uh, kodash, that is holy, to be set apart for God's purposes. And so the juxtaposition between this holy woman and this sinful king couldn't be more clear. 
And just when you think things couldn't get any worse, after David had his way, she's sent home, only to discover a few weeks later that she's pregnant. And there's no indication in the text that David had any remorse over what he's done or that there'd been any other correspondence, like there was any kind of ongoing relationship between them. This wasn't an affair. She was a victim. And then this woman showed incredible bravery. She spoke truth to power. When Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she confronted her abuser. She sent a message to the king to tell David the real consequences of his actions. And now, in his fevered and twisted mind, he concocted a solution. He sent messengers out into the field to call Uriah home to, you know, just discuss how the war is going. And after Uriah gave his report, David assumed that he'd go home and visit his wife. And it's, it's, frankly, it's brilliant if warped plan. Bathsheba would then give birth in the winter. Uriah would just assume the child was his. Problem solved. But Uriah is 10 times the man David was. Instead of going home and enjoying the comforts of home, he throws his bedroll down on the ground next to his men right outside the gates of the palace. And this development, when it is told to David, pushes him over the edge. David tries to get him drunk, and maybe he'll fail in that way. But even still, Uriah stays on the ground with his men. He next figures out a way of dispatching the man. If the truth were to get out, this scandal could bring down his administration. And so he hands Uriah a sealed letter, which has instructions to the commanders to put Joab, uh, to Joab, to put Uriah out on point up against the wall where the fiercest fighting would take place and then to pull back, to abandon him. Uriah is carrying his own death warrant. <clears throat> now this is where our reading this morning ends, but I do want to note another part of the story that gets lost in the retelling. I think most of us remember that Uriah was murdered, but the text also says that other Israelite soldiers were lost in that battle. You see, there's collateral damage to David's choices. When the king sins, the people suffer. And that's a pattern that we'll repeat again and again in our scriptures. And if that were the end of the story, then I think David would be remembered primarily as one of those kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord, the way so many of his successors were. But that's not what happened. You'll probably remember that David was confronted by the prophet Nathan and his wonderful parable about a ewe lamb. David came to recognize his sin, the evil of his ways. I mean, he, he went out of the woods. The, the child that he and Bathsheba uh, had died, um, but his second son with her, Solomon, came to wisely rule a united kingdom. But even that took place after a civil war where his half-brothers killed one another uh, the spilling of the blood of kith and kin. But even within all of this, there's a, there's a small sign of the presence of God's grace within this wicked story. Uh, I think it's best seen in David's song of penitence that he composed. We now know it as the 51st Psalm. It contains these words, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. You see, God, and this is where we start finding in the scriptures how God is, God did forgive David and allowed his lineage to continue for a time. And for those of us who know the rest of the story, God would use this family's line to offer hope to the world 
For as Isaiah prophesied, a, sh a shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This does indeed tell us a great deal about God, that God can forgive even the most reprobate sinner, but also that God is working in history in surprising ways. I mean, we see this again and again, don't we? The God's choice to call a people who weren't an empire, but was just a simple band of nomads, or how God's plan was seemingly thwarted when they were forced into slavery in Egypt. And yet that led to, of course, the Exodus, where God was literally in the presence of the people leading them with pillars of cloud and fire. Um, when they finally got to the promised land, God let them have this curious polity where they were ruled by righteous judges instead of kings like other nations. And, and when they finally got a king, the plot took a twist because the king lost his mind. And then Samuel was called to go and anoint another king. And of course, when he goes to Jesse's house, he doesn't choose the oldest son, the eldest brother, the way the ordinary uh, world would work. He goes to the youngest, the least likely. And when they are battling the Philistines, as I mentioned, this little child is able to face the giant, Goliath, and to win. And now we see it when the anointed king falls for the allure of palace life and has abrogated his kingly duties. And yet, and yet, God is still there, working in and through this broken and sinful family to make manifest the means of salvation for all of humankind. Well, what does the scripture tell us about ourselves? Well, the first thing I notice is that as a society, we often give men a pass when they behave badly towards women. I was in my mid-20s in seminary when Dr. O'Connor pointed out that I had been reading this story all wrong my whole life. Now it's as plain as the nose on my face that David was the bad actor here, but somehow I'd got into my head that it was Bathsheba who enticed David. She was a foul temptress who lured the righteous king into sin, or that she at least was an equal conspirator in David's machinations. How does this happen? Well, the leaders of the Me Too movement would point out that I've inherited cultural lenses and tend to see the world in a way that supports patriarchy and diminishes or suppresses the agency of women. Oh, and it, it, it's subtle, too. Pick up your pew Bible. Turn to 2 Samuel 11. You'll see a, a chapter title there. Now, the, these, the titles that are in the Bible are not in the Hebrew or in the Greek. It's just a little aid that the translators and the publishers put there to help us navigate the stories as we're flipping through the Bible. And the editors of the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which is the one that most PCA churches use, has this chapter title right above the paragraph. It says, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. If you go look up adultery in the dictionary, in most definitions, the first or second word is voluntary. Now, the editors probably did this without any intention, but unknowingly they have helped reinforce old stereotypes. Or how about this one? How about militarism? Of all the sermons I've ever heard preached about this text, most have involved a good deal of metaphorical pearl clutching over the uh, concupiscence of the main actors. But I've never heard anyone address the troubling first line of the story, and I'll reread it. In the spring of the year, the times when kings go out to battle, there's a prescribed time to go out. And wait. It's, like, it's like the opening of baseball season, right? 
We just gloss over it and keep reading. But why do we take it for granted that war is the natural state of things? And do you remember where I said they were waging this war? Rabath Ammon? That's in Jordan. Last time I looked at a map, Jordan was outside of the promised land. This was not a defensive action. Unless you use like convoluted logic that says we're going to take the fight to the enemy before they bring it to us. This is about territorial expansion. It's not exactly the golden rule being practiced here. And again, we read this text through our cultural lenses. And for most of the people in this room, that means Western, Eurocentric, American, and that means we carry a lot of baggage. We've got colonial expansionism, resource plunder, manifest destiny, covert regime changes, proxy wars, nuclear proliferation, and a nation that spends more on defense than the next 11 nations combined. Look, I'm not anti-military. My grandfather was in the Army. My father was in the Army. My brother works for a defense contractor. I served two churches in Columbus, Georgia, near Fort Benning, so I had lots of active duty folks in my churches. And I've preached and presided over more funerals with flag-draped coffins than I can count. And I can tell you, TAPS still brings a tear to my eye every time I hear it. But I need to realize I'm part of a culture that is very comfortable waging war, just as the Israelites were. We're sort of like fish that don't realize we're in water because we don't know what it is. We've stopped noticing. But I'm not just a denizen of my culture. I'm also a Christian. I worship the Prince of Peace. We all do. So there are times when we read our scriptures or have it read to us and interpreted to us by others so that we begin to recognize that we're wearing blinders to our own sin. There are times when our faith should challenge us. And, and if it doesn't, we're probably not doing our faith right. We may, in fact, be worshiping something other than our Lord. But the good news is, like David, this is not the end of our story. God gives us the latitude to recognize the error of our ways because of our Lord Jesus, we can trust that when we repent and ask for God's forgiveness, we can rely on God's grace and mercy and know that we will be forgiven so that going forward, we will be better people and better disciples of Jesus than we were yesterday. Amen.